When I first entered ministry about seven years ago, I was an optimist. I was excited to see how God would work in and through mine and the congregation's life. Now, I knew that there would be times when believers would fight with each other, but in general, I pictured this loving, unified body of believers who were constantly growing spiritually. And because they were growing spiritually, the Lord would add to their number. I was employed at my first job down in Tennessee at my first ministry as a worship leader. And on my first Sunday, my first Sunday, within 15 minutes, I caused someone to leave the church. Yeah. Now, thankfully, it wasn't because of anything I had done, um, really. But uh, it was mainly because uh, I found out later that there was a long history with this individual and with this family, and I just happened to be present when things finally went down. But I got a huge dose of reality that day. When you talk about honeymoon phases for pastors, my first one lasted 15 minutes. <laughs> and I learned that churches are, messy, or churches are filled with messy people who live messy lives. Now, I've grown and matured since then, so when I came to this place and I sat down at my desk for the first day, I was determined not to talk to anyone for at least 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, if I could make it, you know, to that 16-minute mark, I was golden. It was good. Thankfully, I, I don't think no one left the church. But I remember opening my Bible for my daily devotion, and the first place that I opened it to was Romans chapter 12. Now, Romans chapter 12 is a great place for a, a worship pastor to start because it talks about our spiritual act of worship being a living sacrifice to God, that our whole life should be worshipful before God. So I was reading this, this chapter, and I read the whole thing. And verses 9 to 18 struck me with such a force that it was as if I was reading them for the very first time. I was in awe of the love that was talked about in this passage. I've read it constantly since then, and I've pondered it and meditated on it, and I've tried to change my life around it. And I believe that we are in a time at this church, in, in the season and life of this body of believers, that we all need to do the same together. So when the world talks about love, it has a very different concept of love. When we think about love, we think about worldly love. It's the love that surrounds us in culture. It's the love that uh, Cogsworth from Beauty and the Beast uh, describes as flowers and chocolates and promises you don't intend to keep. All you need is love. Love lifts us up where we belong. This love is popularized in the slogan, love is love, meaning that no matter who you identify as or who you are in love with, it is, um, it is love. This world uh, talks about love as if it, it can be here today and gone tomorrow. This word love is the same word that is used for my affection for my wife and how I feel about the Big Mac I ate yesterday. Is this what love is? I mean, is this, is this the love that God has for us? Is this the love that we should be showing to each other? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we read earlier by Kevin Hofer, we see Paul describe a love that is very different than worldly love. This love is patient and it is kind. It bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things. This love is not envious. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not fail. 
This is drastically different than the love that we are inclined to give. See, we're inclined to be jealous in our love. We're inclined to hold on to those things in the past that have hurt us. And sometimes we're just ready to give up on love. But that is not present in 1 Corinthians 13. But where did Paul get this concept of love? Paul, of course, looks to the ultimate source of love, and that is God. See, God's love was made manifest through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ sacrificed himself for our salvation. He died and he rose again. So true love is sacrificial. And through Christ's sacrifice, we are transformed and created into a new creation. So true love is transformational. Love manifests itself through grace and justice and goodness and every other attribute of God and every other act of God because God is love and so everything he does is perfectly loving. God's transformative, sacrificial love is the love that is described in the Bible that is made manifest through the work and life of Jesus and is the love that we should be striving for on a daily basis. When we exhibit this love, it is a sanctified love. So when Paul uses the word love, he means transformative, living sacrifice, sanctified love. But if you're like me, when we are faced with a love so amazing, so great, so truly awe-inspiring, we're left wondering, how do I actually live this out? How do I love with Christ's transformative, living sacrifice, sanctified love? Well, to answer this, let's dig in to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, 9 to 18. Paul begins his letter to the Romans talking about the sinfulness of humanity, our condemnation because of our rebellion, God's grace given through Christ, our justification, and our redemption. Paul makes clear that true believers are sanctified, made holy by the working of the Holy Spirit, and we are held fast by the power of God. We need to first understand that to love with Christ's love isn't possible for unbelievers. It takes the Holy Spirit working in and through our lives for us to love transformationally and sacrificially. If you'd like to learn more about Romans, go talk to Jacob Sinchfield. Then Paul makes a move in chapter 12 to giving instructions to the church on how to be devoted to God and how to build each other up. See, just like in 1 Corinthians, so also here in Romans, we see that when Paul is talking about love, he's talking about it in the context of the body of believers. So we must foundationally understand then that this transformative, living sacrifice, sanctified love is felt and demonstrated among the body of believers. See, too often this context is overlooked. We must understand that he talks about love in the context of the body of believers. Genuine love is actively felt and demonstrated among the body of believers. Before we, but before we even begin to talk about how love is demonstrated among the body of believers, we must ask ourselves a very important question. What do we do when we do not feel like showing Christ's love to each other? What do we feel when we do, what do we do when we do not feel like showing Christ's love to each other? And this is an important question especially in light of how the world talks about love. For the world if you don't feel love then you are not in love. 
What do we do if we don't feel like showing Christ's love? Well, let's dig into Romans 12. Look at verse 9. It says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. In the Greek, Paul starts out verse 9 with two simple words. He simply says, genuine love. And in the Greek, this word for genuine literally means without hypocrisy. See, genuine love does not fake itself. When it comes to showing Christ's love to each other, we must be authentically true. We cannot put on a mask. We cannot pretend that we have this love. It must be authentic. But look at the rest of the verse. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. See, right after telling us that love, this transformative, living sacrifice, sanctified love, must be authentically true, Paul launches right into the active voice. Abhor what is evil. Abhorring what is evil means that we actively choose to hate that which is opposite of God. And because we are inherently rebellious, it is not naturally within us to resist evil. But Paul tells us that we must go beyond resist evil. We must hate it. We must abhor it. But often, we like to settle for, well, let's just try to resist it. But then we're told to hold fast to what is good. Your translation might render it as cling to or cleave to what is good. This word means to join ourselves to something so completely that we are cemented, that we are fastened together to it. Paul shows that love is not genuine when it leads to a person to do something evil or to avoid doing what is right. There should be an intense revulsion to evil and conversely such a strong affinity for good that we fervently seek to do it no matter the, the cost. We must cling to it. Genuine, authentic love is not a directionless emotion or something that is just felt. It must conform to the standards of God's love. The slogan, love is love, then, cannot be true. Because as soon as love calls something evil good, it no longer lives up to the transformative, living sacrifice, sanctified love of God. We must hold fast to good. Knowing we must choose and pursue love even when we don't feel like it, how then do we authentically demonstrate love to the body of believers? Let's continue on. Look at verse 10. It says this, Love one another with brotherly affection. I'm going to pause right there. Love one another. This Greek word for love conveys the mutual love of a parent and, ch and child and is used here for the special connection that should be shared between the members of God's family. See, Paul is explicitly saying that genuine love within the body of believers treats each other as family. Now, this was written to an audience that was deeply divided among nationality, income, status, and bloodlines. And Paul is encouraging a radically different way of relating to one another. It would have been unheard of in that day for the rich and the poor or the master and the slave to come together and to share a meal as a family would or to engage each other in a conversation as equals. It would have been crazy. 
Yet Paul is exhorting the Romans to devote themselves to this type of relationship, a type of relationship that demolishes cliques and extends grace to one another. It's the same exhortation that we have today. We must demolish cliques and extend grace to one another. Now you may be asking yourself, am I part of a clique? Well, do you um, prefer a group of people over another? Then you are part of a clique, and we need to demolish those. We need to extend grace to each other. We're a family. And he furthers this with the rest of the verse. Take a look at it. It says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. To honor someone means to hold the other person up more highly than ourselves. Not only that, but we must outdo one another in showing this honor. Outdo in the Greek means to take leadership in the act. Thus, Paul is saying that we shouldn't just wait for others to come to us and show us honor before we show them honor. We must go to them and show them honor. We take the lead and outdo one another. But how do we do this? Well, Philippians 2, 3 gives us a good clue. So turn to there with me. Philippians 2, 3. How do we take the lead and outdo one another in showing honor? Philippians 2, 3 says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. See, for others to be more significant to, than us, Humility is key. Humility is key. We must actively show humility to each other for us to honor each other. And think of what this meant for Rome. Masters were called to honor their slaves, and men were called to honor women in a way that was very countercultural at the time. But Paul is clear and unwavering. Genuine love humbly lifts others above ourselves. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, this can be hard. See, when we're not um, accustomed to humbling ourselves and lifting others up, we're going to be inclined to shrink back and, and to be timid when the opportunity presents itself. It's curious, though, isn't it, how we are not so uh, afraid or timid about sharing complaints or being negative about each other or about someone else. But to honor someone else, to, to lift them higher than us, eh, not so much. Paul recognizes our inclination and follows his exhortation in the next verse. What does it say? It says, do not be slothful. That's lazy. Do not be lazy or slothful in zeal. In other words, don't be timid or unwilling to act. We must be zealous to honor each other. We must be zealous to humble ourselves. And this zeal is linked with the next part of the verse. It says, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. 
fervency in the Greek literally means to boil over. Paul is saying that we shouldn't be able to contain ourselves in honoring one another. We just blurt it out, spewing honor on everyone in front of us. That is the type of action that we are called to do, to boil over in our fervency and showing honor. How different is that than what we do now? Think about that over the past year. You know, go back into 2019. How often have we complained about someone else? How often have we been negative about someone else? And contrast that with how often we've honored someone else. For honest, we've most likely done more complaining, huh? Probably some more negativity. Genuine love humbly lifts others above ourselves. But how? How can we be humble with others? We are admittedly very prideful. Look at what Paul says at the end of the verse going into the next verse. Serve, or more literally, be a slave to the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. See, true humility before others is born out of a true humility before God. And I would contend, and I would exhort you to understand, that if we are complaining about others and being negative about others, then we do not have a true humility before God because we are no better. True humility before others is born out of a true humility before God. In fact, true humility is not going to happen if you are not a believer. See, we are called to serve, to be a slave to God. And we can only do that because of the gospel, because Jesus provided salvation by grace through faith. It is only through our total dependence on God that we are saved, that we have hope, that we can endure persecution. And that is why we must be constant in prayer. Prayer is born out of humility. We humbly rely on God's direction and humbly admit that we absolutely need Him. See, God is very pointed throughout the entire Bible that He does not accept the prayers of the prideful. Genuine love, then, is humility before our Lord. And it is only when we are humble before God that we can have this fervent, zealous humility to others. But what does humility before others look like? Look at verse 13. Verse 13, it tells us to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Paul shows that a family helps each other with their physical needs, but then extends this understanding of family to those outside of the church by saying, seek to show hospitality. This word seek loses its emphasis in Greek. Underline this word, circle this word, put a star by this word. Uh, put a stick figure pointing to this word seek. It loses its emphasis. It is the same word that is used in the next verse for persecute. Persecute. To hunt down, search out, doggedly hound. 
persecute. We falsely assume that we should wait for others to come to us, for us to show them hospitality. Paul is saying, hunt them down to show them care. Paul is forcefully, very forcefully exhorting uh, believers to pursue others to care for them. Genuine love actively and humbly cares for strangers as one cares for family. And don't we see that in the life of Jesus? Did he not go out and search out people and care for them? Now, I can almost hear an objection reverberating through the back of our minds. Showing Christ's transformative, living, sacrifice, sanctified love is all well and good and works with people who are lovable. But what about for people who are unlovable? What about those who hurt us and wound us and mistreat us? Are we to treat them like family? Well, let's turn to verses 14 and 17. Paul makes a very forceful turn in verse 14. See, up until this point, he has been speaking with a gentle authority. But look at this verse. He suddenly switches to a command that we bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Paul demands this of us. God demands this of us. And I want you to really understand this, okay? Really take note here. Paul is not talking about those outside the church persecuting us. See, this letter was written seven to eight years before Nero would start his intense persecution of the church. And so the church was experiencing a time of relative peace. And remember, the context of this passage is written to believers and how to act within the church. Paul is demanding that we bless those other believers who are persecuting us, who are doggedly hounding us and hurting us. Because let's be honest, sinning Christians can hurt us, sometimes worse than unbelievers. It's hard to speak to these unloving believers. But how? How are we to bless them? Well, the same word in the Greek is uh, means to speak well of. See, genuine love speaks well of enemies, even when they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. It speaks well of them to their face, and it speaks well of them to other people. Paul emphasizes his point by giving a double command. He says, bless and do not curse. Just as important as blessing those who are persecuting us, just as important as, as speaking well of those who are persecuting us, we must also not curse or speak badly of them to other people. And let's be honest, speaking well of our enemies, even sinning Christians, is not what we want to do. But we must remember that genuine love is active in the face of persecution, even from unloving believers. Paul follows this up in verse 17. What's it say? Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. <laughs> Our honest inclination is to always repay evil for evil. Is it not? But Paul says to give thought or to foresee what is honorable. 
See, we shouldn't react to evil. We should proactively pray and give thought to what we should do and what our response should be. And that response must be what is honorable in the sight of all. And this word all might be, you know, um, hard to understand, so let me explain it for a second. This word all includes believers, those committing evil against us, and the whole world. Everyone. Do what is honorable in the sight of all. Genuine love is concerned with our witness to others. So if this is what Christ's transformative, living sacrifice, sanctified love looks like, if this is what genuine Christian love looks like, how are we going to pull this off? Well, we've gotten clues throughout the passage for how to answer this question. In order to pull off genuine love, it's going to take an active humility and an intentional orientation of the will. That's our big idea for today. Genuine love is an act of humility and an intentional orientation of the will. Let's look back and see how each verse reveals this truth. Look at verse 9. If we are to abhor evil and hold fast to what is good, will this not take an intentional orientation of the will? We can't be passive in this, can we? We must actively and intentionally will ourselves through God's Spirit to respond and choose good. Look at verse 10. To show each other honor. Will that not take an act of humility and a purposeful direction of our will to do those things, especially since we're just innately prideful? To combat this will take every effort on our part. Verse 11. It encourages us to humble action through and through. Verse 12, it begins and ends with humility, rejoicing in the hope of the gospel, which we could not secure ourselves, and humbly turning to God in constant prayer at every opportunity and admitting that we cannot do anything without him. Verse 13 shows that we should actively help those within the body of believers and outside the body of believers. We don't wait for people to come to us. We must search them out and show hospitality. And verse 14 and 17 sees us willfully humbling ourselves even in the face of unloving believers and speaking well of them and responding with what is honorable in the sight of all. Yeah, to pull off genuine love, it's going to take an active humility and an intentional orientation of the will. Transformative, living sacrifice, sanctified love, genuine love, Christ's love isn't just a feeling. It's an act of humility and an intentional orientation of the will. So then, how do we practically live this out? Well, our first step, our first practical step is a realization. We will not be able to live this out if we are not believers. Loving with Christ's love This transformational, living sacrifice, sanctified love is only possible when we place complete faith and trust in him. It's not possible for us to love with Christ's love in our own strength because it takes total reliance on the work of the Spirit in our lives, changing and molding us to look and act more like Christ. If we are not humble before God, and admit our need for him and his sovereignty in our lives, we will not be able to humble ourselves before other people who are are fallible. We're petty. 
we are undeserving of humility. If we don't recognize Jesus as Lord, then we will have no desire to bring our love into full submission to his love. So ask yourself this critical question and be very honest with yourself about the answer. Do you exhibit this love? Do you exhibit this love? And what does it say about your walk with God? Practical step number one, no matter if you're not doing it or if you're doing it well, take this opportunity to go back, review, believe, and obey the gospel. This passage reveals our next practical step. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. Paul reminds us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We should support each other and we should be with each other at our highs and at our lows. Now, most of us are inclined to mourn with those who mourn, but envy and a, a sense of competition often keeps us from truly rejoicing with those who rejoice. See, genuine love enters wholeheartedly into the joy of other believers. Similar, similarly, genuine love will bring us to identify so intimately with our brothers and sisters in Christ that their sorrows become our sorrows. So practical step number two, through fellowship, lift one another's burdens share one another's burdens, and support each other. Practical step number three is found in verse 16. Look at what it says. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now the NASB gives a more literal translation of this passage, so I'm going to read it because it helps, it under, helps us understand it more fully. It says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. Now a whole sermon could be preached on this singular verse alone, so I'm going to admit that everything I've done up to this point has been introduction. So let's buckle in for my actual text for this, this morning. All right, I'm kidding. Some of you are plotting your escape, though. <laughs> Paul says that we should be of the same mind toward one another and not to be haughty in mind. The first time mind is used, it means to have the same understanding or to agree together. Essentially, be unified. But that leads us to a question. If we are to be of the same mind, then whose mind do we have to agree with or bring our mind into uniformity with? We take our cue from Matthew chapter 16. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 21 to 23. Matthew chapter 16, 21 to 23. Whose mind do we have to agree with or bring our minds into uniformity with? Right after, in this passage, right after Peter proclaims Jesus as the Messiah, this passage shows Jesus predicting his death. Peter takes him to, a, to the side, okay? And in verse 22 says this. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he, that, that is Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, 
Here, Peter's mind was not in agreement with the mind of God and is thus becoming a hindrance to Jesus. See, if we are to have the same mind to one another, then that does not mean that you should have the same mind to me or that you should have the same mind to Chance or that you should have the same mind to to Chuck Hansen. Rather, we must all have the same mind to God. Matthew shows us that we, that not having the same mind to God can actually cause others to sin. And if Peter was becoming a hindrance to Jesus, how much more will we be a hindrance to each other if we do not have the same mind to God? Peter also shows what Paul means back in Romans 12 of not being haughty in mind. See, a haughty mind is prideful. It looks after your own interests. We must have nothing to do with this mind. Rather, we must associate with the lowly, meaning that we need to yield or submit ourselves to the humble, the depressed, the low in spirit people. Associating with the lonely means that the lowly means that we should be a part of them in such a way that whatever happens to them happens to us as well. Genuine love is humble through and through. And so practical step number three is to just let go of the small things, to to bring ourselves in submission to God's mind, and to humble ourselves to be a servant to the lowly. This is exactly what Jesus did. He humbled himself from being God to being man. Why don't we live this out? And verse 18 provides the fourth and final step to practically living out genuine love. Let's look at that together. Verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The word possible is built from the Greek word for strong, mighty, powerful. Essentially what Paul is getting at is if it is in your strength to act, if it is possible, if it is in your strength to act, then do it. He renders this in such a way, however, that he recognizes that it will not always be possible to live peaceably with all. See, there will be times when people violate the essential truths of the gospel, and there will be times when people do not want to live peaceably with us. And in those cases, but very few others, Peace is not attainable. Not because we failed to strive for peace, but because the other person refuses to reconcile. Still, we should understand that in this verse that we are told to give every effort to living at peace with one another, persevering over and over again until we have exhausted all possibilities. Practical step number four is actively pursue and cultivate peace. Close your eyes with me a minute. Imagine with me, just for a moment, a church of of 400 people in the heart of South Dakota living like this. 400 people practically showing Christ's love for each other and others, actively humbling themselves and intentionally orienting their will in submission and obedience to this awesome, this transformative, living sacrifice, sanctified love. Would not the whole community be changed? Would not the whole nation, would not the whole world? I am now 
over seven years into ministry. And I am still the optimist I was at the beginning. Why? Why, in the face of us acting as the humans we are, why am I still an optimist and not a pessimist, or at the very least, a realist? It's because I trust God more than I trust myself or any of us. And I have seen him working in this church and in my life over the last few years. God is love. And he is seeking to grow Christ's transformative, living sacrifice, sanctified love in each of us who truly profess faith in him. This genuine love takes an active humility and an intentional orientation of the will. I challenge you. The Bible demands of you that we pursue this with every ounce of our being. Walk out of these doors today different than how you walked in. Interact with each other as soon as you leave this place differently than how you acted with each other walking into this place. That is what you are called to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are love. And how we show your love to each other bears witness on who you are. The world will know, Lord, who you are by our love, how we act with each other. I pray, Lord, that you grow this genuine love in each of us, that you renew our minds, that you create in us a clean heart, that you impress it upon us, impress it upon us, Lord, that we may go forth from here with such a ferocity and zeal that people will be able to, to distinguish us from the rest of the world that we will outdo one another in showing honor, that we will humble ourselves, that we, we will bless those who persecute us. Lord, give us a zeal to do this. Pour out your spirit this morning, Lord, on each person here and convict us and change us. I pray, Lord, that we go out of these walls and that we share this love, we share your gospel with each person that we come into contact with, that we will not rest until each person has heard it and our lives have been changed. I pray this all, Lord, in your name. Amen. Please stand and join us for our closing song. Spirit, we are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity will one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know.
these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if his love will hold us fast then we must show his love to others. Go in peace.